on this week's Inside Marketing, I'll be talking to Jenny Romaniuk. She has been a fantastic contributor to our industry, and we will talk about lots of things. We'll talk about how brands grow, we'll talk about her work at the Ehrenberg Institute, and we'll talk about buyer profiles and segmentation, why we're making a huge mistake by focusing on heavy users and building personas. So it's going to be a really interesting one, and I'm delighted to be joined by Jenny Romaniuk today, only on this week's Inside Marketing. The Inside Marketing Podcast, brought to you by Dentsu and Irish Times Media Solutions. Hello and welcome to this week's Inside Marketing. As I said in the intro, I'm delighted to be joined by Jenny Romani. Good morning, or sorry, good evening, Jenny, for you. It's morning for me, it's evening for you. So we're, we're opposite, it's dark, it's raining, it's bright and sunny where you are. It's dark and miserable where I am. So we are completely opposite ends of the of the world here. So first of all, thanks for joining me and making the time and uh, into your schedule. And second of all, how are you? How are you doing today? How's life? I'm doing very well. We've got a lovely sunny day out here, which you said is quite funny given you're in the morning and it's bleak and miserable and I'm in the evening and it's beautiful and sunny. Well, But yeah. that's the advantage of being Australian. Uh, and that's Dublin. It's bleak. It could be dark and bleak all day. We just don't know what we're going to get. But anyway, so I'm conscious of your time and, uh, well, not so much my time, but your time anyway. So I'm going to get through as much as I can. So um, I will crack on. So uh, yeah, but thanks. I'm really looking forward to this. So thanks for joining me. So um, let's kick off. I, I spoke to um, Professor Sharp, I don't know when it was, a couple of years ago. And just, I just want to kind of give people a bit of a, an easy soft landing or an intro to warm us up. So um, and at that time, uh, like at the Ehrenberg Institute has done fantastic work. And at that time, how brands grow. I mean, you look back and I read it now and everybody looks at it and says, yeah, it's obvious. obvious. It wasn't obvious at the time, but like some of the stuff is just, which I always think is, um, it, it's a great example of irrefutable uh, common sense, if, if you know. So, you know, like the uh, I remember before that clients talking about heavy users and modeling people on heavy users and building lookalikes and their personas are built on really heavy users and they tend to be outliers. Um, so there's no headroom for growth in, in heavy users and you have way more light and non-users. So, um, but yet a lot of, uh, it, as I said, it's, it's, it's obvious in hindsight now, but it wasn't at the time. So, I know a lot of brand tracking and it's still to this day, a lot of clients when they're doing it, they tend to look at these uh, at heavy users, that, like when they're filtering people and they want to go deep on personas. Do you think that's a mistake um, that we focus on? Like, should we not be looking at light or non-users if you want to if you want to start to understand who you should target? Or does that even matter in, at all? Do they all kind of look the same? Yeah, I mean, that was one of the um, reasons I wrote a book on brand health tracking was because I was concerned that we were kind of missing the point. Mm. And, you know, you say about people um, like diving in and trying to find and, and trying to like separate out heavy users to look at them. You know what the secret is? You don't need to do that because they actually already permeate all of your results. You actually have to separate out the light and non-buyers because mm. they're the ones that are hard to hard to hear. I liken it to imagine you've got a room of 100 people and you've got 10 people yelling at the top of their voice and the other, you know, say 40 of them are whispering and the other remainder are not saying anything. You want to hear if that whisper or those people not saying anything just go up a bit you're not going to hear it if you've got 10 people mm. yelling at you the entire time. So you have to put those 10 people in a different room. Mm. You know, they're still important. We still like them. We want them to have a great time. But we do want to listen to the people who are not talking so loudly and see whether or not they've 
you know, just talk a little bit louder about our brand that just might make it more likely they're going to think of us in a buying situation. So that's one of the big problems of brand health tracking is it being so heavily weighted, either implicitly or explicitly, to the heavy loyal buyer that um, we haven't been able to see opportunities for growth. Mm. Yeah, and it, it does. I'm still amazed at how often I see it because it, it just seems quite intuitive that you you would you would try and talk to people and understand the people that are not buying because they're the ones you want to buy. <laughs> but then the logic is, well, we want to find out why people buy and then go find more of those people. But when you think about different categories, so um, and, and the laws of growth, uh, does it change? So something like you know washing powder, I might buy every whatever every three or four weeks. Um, it doesn't cost that much, so I don't have to think about it that much. If I buy the wrong thing, if I don't like it, it doesn't matter. I'm going to be buying it again. The purchase cycle is fairly frequent that it happens. Whereas if you think about maybe a phone I might buy or insurance I might buy every year or a phone a bit more, I'm going to have it. It's a bit more brand. I'm going to have it for maybe two two years or whatever. Or a car, I might only buy four or five cars in my life. So do the laws of growth change when you look at different categories or is it pretty much the same rule applies that um, the buyers kind of look the same? What, does it differ? Yeah, what we find is that we have a lot of assumptions about buying in different categories. I mean, you just shared a few there, the idea of buying washing powder every three to four weeks. My question would be, do you really? Because most people don't. There's a lot of people who only buy washing powder once a year. And, you know, and this is actually quite normal. So what we think of as like fast-moving consumer goods, which was a label given to them, actually don't move that fast. Right. Yes, there's a few categories we buy really frequently, but if you look at something like toilet cleaner, you look at um, window cleaner. Yeah. vast majority of people buy that once a year and that's it. Right. So, so our assumptions about how much people know and how often people act with like grocery is often overstated. Don't get me wrong, there are, in every category there are some people who are very heavy buyers, um, and there, but there are a lot of really light buyers. Mm. Then we go to something like um, insurance. So when you so when you think about it that way and you go, oh, well, insurance, only buying once a year, well, that's the same as the person who only buys, um, you know, a window cleaner once a year. Mm. So maybe they're not that different after all. But there are different behaviours with insurance. For example, um, so so the metrics change. So with something like um, window cleaner, we might focus on purchase frequency as a loyalty metric. With insurance, we might focus on renewal as a loyalty metric or it's reverse defection because not many people defect. Um, and so the laws of growth, the metrics might change Penetration tends to be a pretty consistent one, mm. but the time frame can change depending on the category. You know, you can have a, a shorter penetration for something like, um, you know, chocolate buying mm -hmm. or dog food, and you can have a longer penetration for, say, a cleaning product or garbage bags. Um, when you go to subscription markets, you're dealing with different metrics, but we also have now repertoire subscription markets. For example, how many... TV streaming services do you currently have? Yeah, probably about four. I don't know. Yeah. So you subscribe to all of them, but you've got multiple that satisfy your thing. So so these categories are all blurring together. So our assumptions about them being really different mm. actually are really held up. And we also have to remember it's the same person buying the washing powder 
going on holidays, buying the phone, buying the car. So it's probably not surprising we have some common ways of dealing with multi-brand choice situations because why would we develop totally different strategies to deal with what are not actually that big a difference in buying? Mm. Yeah, so yeah. The is it does hold in very all these different categories. Right. Yeah. So it, it's it's it may not be as complicated as 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 we thought. Well, I mean, we do we do like this comes up a lot. Like the the industry tends to try and make things overly complicated, and a lot of people say it's not as complicated as we as as we would like people to believe, which makes some people uncomfortable. But um, I, I read I read something you said before, and it it was a great point. Um. It, it talked about advertise, the role of advertising. So I think you made a point saying, look, human beings, by definition, we are not great at changing other people, persuading people, right? We're like You think about any evidence that we have ourselves, anytime you're in a discussion with somebody and they have a point of view and you have a different point of view and you talk for ages about it and neither person changes their point of view on it. You might be respectful of that, of the other person's view, but it doesn't change yours. So it's really hard, even on a human being level to change another person's opinion and yet I'm in loads of meetings and we and we think in advertising we need to change people's opinion about this and we think that a 30 second ad is going to do that right and even if even if a 45 minute chat in depth one on one with somebody won't do it we think that a 30 second ad might so a lot of people do think advertising's role is to persuade and you know there's all these different models of advertising what's what's your view what do you think the role of advertising is if it, is it to persuade or is it not to persuade or convince what, what do you think of that I would say I can't take credit for the thinking because that was actually Andrew Ehrenberg who really pioneered the idea of he described advertising as creative publicity that it's out there to remind us of things, yeah, often with things we already know but we've forgotten or are harder to remember, and occasionally build new mental structures when there's something new to say. But often what happens with persuasion is it's a focus on new news because the assumption is you already know the old stuff, that hasn't worked, I have to give you something totally new. But the reality of the way our memories work, the natural state of memories to decay. So we often forget things we already know, and that's the biggest, that's when advertising is at its best, when it's telling us things, we, reminding us of things we already know, but doing it in a fresh and exciting way that makes takes us pay attention and go, oh, yeah, that's right. You know, I, mm. I do like surprise at Christmas time. I've forgotten about that, but mm. now I've seen it from a supermarket that reminds me they're on sale. I go, oh, yeah, that's right. That'd be fun. If I don't like mince pies, seeing an ad for mince pies, mm. and I, I picked that deliberately because I find that mince pies polarise people. Yeah, have I hate them. them. I hate them. I, yeah, see, I love them. So what ad is going to convince you that mince oh, pies yeah. are where it's Yeah. Exactly. No. So, but, but, yeah. So if you're a mince pie seller, um, better off trying to jam. Yeah, remind me about it mm. than trying to provide new information to you to hopefully get you over the line. Yeah, and you're right. Like my my little fella's five and a half. We were driving up, dropping him to school or swimming the other day and there's an amazing, big, huge poster. I think it's for um, Duns or something and they had really nice looking mince pies on it with some shapes on the top of them and he's like oh can we get them and I was like well, you don't like mince pies and he's like they look really nice and I said well you had them before did you like them no I didn't like them so then we're not, you're not going to like those and so um, there's no amount of convincing in the world you're right um, and you met on your book um, A Better Brand Health and uh, Measures and Metrics for a, a How Brands Grow World how do you define brand health? Because brand health is a term that is used quite a lot um, and it, it's it probably very, very 
complicated nuance of, of 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 how you might define that. But I mean, how do you when you when someone you use the term brand health? How do you think it should be measured really importantly? And what what do you think? Because there's lots of them, and I'm going to get into some in a second. And um, because I'm involved and see a lot of research, so what is brand health, and how do you think it should be measured? Mm. Yeah, I mean, I confess, I would prefer not to use the term brand health, but it just seems to be a general term that when you say that, it refers to the bit of research that I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. I prefer to call it a category by a memory tracker because that's what I think it is. It's about assessing how well brands have formed memories in the minds of their category buyers and determines whether or not they've left the right foundation. So next time those buyers are in buying situations, your brand is in the best position it can be to hopefully be one of those that's mentally available. And then if you as a marketer have done the work to make sure your physical availability is there, then, uh, yeah, you've got a good chance of being bought. But it's always about upping the probabilities. Probability of retrieval, which is mental availability. Probability of finding and buying, which is physical availability. So to me, brand health is the mental side of it. Well, how do we make sure we've understood those memories? Which means we need to measure them in different ways because there are different ways we use those memories. Mm. And like one of the, there's lots of ways you can do it. And Brand tracking studies, brand trackers, there, there's loads of them. It's a it's a fine business and it's really useful, I have to say, um, in, in, in the majority, sorry, they are really useful. Now, some of the things may not be useful that we measure. It's like anything else, right? You can measure lots of stuff. And I think like one of the things that that I see a lot and I can totally understand why people do it, but you, you have a view on this is spontaneous or unprompted awareness um, or actually even prompted or top of mind awareness, right? So um, that is a metric because any, anybody who's in any brand tracking tracking as an agency person or, or on the client, they'll know this. It's kind of the first one um, and they uh, people worry about it quite a lot, how we do and, you know, um, or being mentioned in, in top four mentions. Uh, people get terribly, terribly, terribly worried about this. Um, what do you think about this as a metric of, of mental availability? Um, what, how useful well, are they? Well, well, that's the first thing to ask yourselves. What what do we measure brand awareness for? And and it's important to have a bit of history in here because, remember, brand awareness was one of the first sort of brand equity measures, which is sort of the precursor to brand health, this idea of brands having equity, um, that came out. And it came out in the 1950s and 60s when people started to understand there was a separate thing from you have the product and the brand. And there's the the sort of seminal article by Gardner and Levy that was published in Harvard Business Review that said, you know, these are two different things. The brand is in people's minds. The product is what is delivered. And, you know, that really set off this whole field of branding. So brand awareness came in with this, the basic premise idea that you have to know what someone sells in order to buy from them. So you have to know that. So if I said to you, avocado, what do you think of? What would you say? What Generally, uh, f- food. <laughs> yeah. yeah, a food, a fruit. But in the US, Avocado Green is a mattress company. Right. So you don't have that in the mattress part of your brain. You do now because mm. I've told you that. I've yeah. created brand awareness for that. But that's the thing is, so all companies have to explain to people to sell. Now, at the time when this measure was developed, we hadn't really integrated what we know about memory into our branding thinking. So people also used it as a way to measure the ease of retrieval from memory. Okay, so that's why we have prompted 
and unprompted measures. So the prompted measures are all about category membership. Do you know that Avocado is a mattress company? An unprompted measure is about how easily can that come to mind when you have the category queue of mattresses in this case. Now, what's happened over time is that um, people have focused more on the ease of retrieval rather than the category membership, which means they've missed the whole point of why it started. But there's also some big assumptions in that. Now, the first thing to remember is that those three types of measurement, whether you do top of mind, total spontaneous, which is any recall, um, yeah, in any order, it doesn't have to be first, mm-hmm. or if it's prompted, is all coming from the same memories. You're just making it more difficult for a brand to achieve that hurdle. And when you make it more difficult, you bias much more towards those heavy buyers, those brand buyers, and you miss the people. You may have it in their brain, but the non your non-buyers are other brands' buyers. And so that's what's going to come up for them. And so if you make it really difficult, you're not going to pick up when a small brand has got into someone's brain, which is a big problem if you're a small brand, you're not getting a good reading on it. And it's a big problem if you're a big brand because you're not seeing a competitive threat that's potentially coming. Also assumes that is that we enter through the category queue. And this is where the difference between unprompted awareness and mental availability comes in. We know from how our memory works is we don't all just think, I need a mattress. What mattress companies do I know? I think of them and then, oh, they're the ones I'll go and investigate. No, you think, oh, you know, my back's been hurting me. I need something for my back or, oh, that one. I, I went to this hotel and there was a beautiful soft mattress. Yeah, I need my mattress to be softer or, you know, oh, I snore so much. I need something that's going to stop that. Yeah, we're going in not just with the category but with the contextual cues that define what we want. And so that's the difference is that when we try to measure ease of retrieval with just a category queue, we don't get a very good read on the ease of retrieval for the brand. So we need to extend it to other contextual cues, and that's what I call category entry points. Mm. They're the contextual cues that people use when they go from just being a person to being a potential category buyer, and they shape what brands are likely to be thought of at that time. Right. So... That all makes sense to me. So, are you? Would, if a client was worrying, just kind of doing their, their brand tracking and looking at it every month and, and unprompted, uh, spontaneous or unprompted awareness, they weren't doing well in that. Would you say, don't worry about that? It doesn't matter. Or so, does it matter? Well, first all, yeah. First of all, I'd say don't do it every month. Right. You don't need to measure it that frequently. It's not necessary. Our brain, our memory, you don't, unless you are, say, the one exception to that, and even then I'd suggest quarterly would be something like supermarkets that tend to do like weekly advertising, their specials, things, sort of stuff. Most brands are not that heavy advertiser that they're going to move masses of memories in a month. And so, of course, this then feeds into you get those, diagrams of dots that aren't changing much and everyone goes why are we watching this sort of stuff yeah 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 so so if your unprompted awareness is not changing my question would be why would you expect it to what have you done that's actually reached out to do that and if it hasn't changed it might be because you're having got the category memory structure very well embedded it's surprising how many ads 
you don't even know what category they're for, mm. um, particularly around Christmas time because they all turn on the Christmas category. They yeah. kind of forget to tell what they sell sometimes, um, which you kind of go, not sure what the purpose of the ad was. Yeah, true. Um, sort of stuff. Um, or it could be that you didn't have the branding particularly strong in the communication. Um or sometimes maybe what we've seen with brand unprompted awareness scores is you can have users go up and non-users go down and then cancel out mm. because they don't always, even when they go up together, it doesn't mean every, all, all cohorts go in. For example, if you do a heavy price promotion, that tends to reach buyers but not, but not very light and non-buyers. So you can see a rise in buyer unprompted awareness because more people have more recently bought and seen that, but non-buyers are actually untouched in that time. Mm. So it's, it's it's if you're going to, so I would not measure top of mind awareness because I've yet to see any value in it. Mm. If you are going to measure spontaneous awareness, I would say you'll get more value if you split it out into buyers and non-buyers mm. because that then gives you at least some sense of when I do rise, are they all rising together? Am I hitting one and not the other? And then you can feed that back in. But I still am not 100%. It's not something I would recommend if you were starting from scratch and you you didn't have to start it. Right. It's not in a template brand okay. tracker. Okay. And you mentioned um, a couple of seconds, a couple of minutes ago, um, size, how the, the, the size of the brand um, can can affect things. So um is is it important? Do you think when you're when you're so when when you're talking to clients and you're designing brand tracking research and that kind of stuff, how how important is it to to calibrate for that? Um and and what what type of things can you miss if you haven't adjusted for how big the brand is in the category? Like what can happen? What are the types of the, the how can the the um, brand tracking results be then misleading? What type of things can go wrong if you don't model for that? Yeah, I mean well yeah big so most brand health tracking, so the biggest, so step back for one more. The biggest impact we have on our memories is when we have direct experience with something. Mm-hmm. So if you bought something, so you've interacted with it physically often or, or you've paid money for it, you've thought more about it than anyone else. And so that imprints into your memory. You might interact with a new consuming. It varies across categories. But we see this systematically. Brand buyers are more likely to respond to pretty much any measure than non-buyers. It's kind of like a, it's it's basically a, a sort of a gateway to, okay, you've got something that's on track. If you have a measure that doesn't do that, that for some reason non-buyers score more than buyers, I would really worry about what is that actually measuring. And sometimes it's measuring something objective like is this high-priced or low-priced, and in which case you don't really need to measure it. It's a different conversation. So because of that, big brands tend to score more than small brands, and that's normal, and that's a reflection of your past, but that doesn't mean it's a reflection of your future. So if you don't control for that, guess what? Big brands go, yay, we scored more, we are the best, until you're not. And they don't see threats coming. And small brands can can abandon things that probably were working, but they're going, ah, I didn't get the, you know, I didn't get the response of a big brand. It's like, well, you're never going to because things like advertising awareness, we know that, you know, users are more likely to notice advertising for brands they use than non-users. So even those things have to be calibrated mm. for it. 
Um, and so you don't want to abandon a perfectly good advertising campaign that was actually working for you because you're benchmarking against something that was unrealistic for you to achieve in the brand size that you have. And this is where separating out users and non-users helps, mm. but it doesn't correct perfectly because of the law of double jeopardy, which also fits in. And that means that even amongst the buyers of small brands, they tend to score lower than the buyers of big brands do when it comes to perceptions. Mm -hmm. And that's because of split loyalties. So the, a lot of the buyers, big brands tend to monopolise light category buyers who would only buy one brand and they only know the big brand, mm. whereas small brands tend to usually have a greater proportion of heavy category buyers who have more brands that they can say. And it's then easy to be dropped off the list because the person responding actually has five brands that they use, not just one. Mm. So all those mean that if you don't control for brand size, you're just getting a misread. You, you, you just risk missing threats and abandoning good stuff mm. because you're understanding what's going on. Mm. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's 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 super important, and I'm not sure I'm not sure it's done enough to be honest. Um, you mentioned category entry points, uh, and again, I, I'm quite familiar with them, but maybe some people are not familiar with them. So, can you can you gi give a, a short introduction or explanation as to what category entry points are, and give a couple of examples of, of what you mean by it in terms of how you think about people in different whatever category you want to take any category you want as an example, but explain what they are because they're they're covered quite in detail, um, and the tools and, and and a framework that you have. So, just explain what people are and what you mean by them. Yeah, okay. So so a lot of times when we um, interview people, we classify them as category buyers or not. Mm -hmm. So I'm a coffee category buyer. I am a natural mineral water category buyer because I have that here. I'm a phone category buyer, except for I'm not right now. Mm -hmm. I'm not buying any of those right now because I'm talking to you on a podcast. So actually category buying, that whole persona is – temporary it's not permanent even though we kind of think it's tattooed on people's brains so there's a portion so last year I was traveling and um yeah lost my phone left it in a bus in Lyon in France in Spain if anyone is at the Lyon bus terminal at any point in time there's an iPhone in the <sighs> lost and found um, I will give you a reward if you give it back to me because I can't get anyone on the phone or email to actually return it to me. So anyway, as a response of that, I had to get a new phone. Um, and so that then I became an, a new phone buyer because I lost my phone and I had to. But up until the point when I lost my phone, not even thinking about phones, mm. not even concerned about um, and so, so this is where, so this idea of category entry points is when people transition from just being a person, going about their lives, to being a potential category buyer. Now, they don't always follow through and buy the category because sometimes you start to buy the category. It's too hard. You can't be bothered. Mm -hmm. We always have the option to not buy. Um, but, you know, this transitions through. So about 11 o'clock every day, I am a coffee category buyer because it's usually my last coffee of the day because only, I only allow myself coffee up to lunch because it keeps me awake. So I'm not a coffee drinker, a coffee buyer right now, not even a coffee drinker right now because it's too late for me. Mm -hmm. And the thoughts I will have will vary depending on a whole heap of both internal and external circumstances. And so to 
capture those, we I developed the framework of the Ws, um, just because it allow makes sure that we don't put our own biases when we're looking for category entry points. So they are where, when, while, with or for whom, um, uh, captures other people, um, with or instead of what, so that's other categories that can be in there, uh, how you're feeling, so that can be before, during or after uh, category consumption, um, and why, mm-hmm. which captures benefits and motives. Um, and those that framework can be used, you can apply that, you can ask consumers, you can brainstorm yourself to come through all of the different areas in which um, people can come into the category. Now, category entry points themselves are single idea entities. So they're usually about things like I had a bad night's sleep or um, I need to wake up quickly, so I'm thinking here about coffee, um, or I'm catching up with a friend. You know, all of these things that can influence the type of coffee that I'm considering as appropriate at that time. But in real life, Tomorrow, when I catch up with somebody, I might have had a bad night's sleep, need something to pick me up, and I'm catching up with a friend at the same moment. So in real life, I use the multiple category entry points. But in measurement, I want to separate them out because different ones of those will come up at different times. I will have nights I don't sleep well. I will have days when I'm catching up with friends and I will um, need pick-me-ups at different points in time. Those three won't always happen together, Mm. but they will together sometimes. So when we're talking about category entry points, we're about separating out all of those different things that can influence the ideas of what is suitable for you from the category at that time. And then trying to see how well the brand performs against them. Does it perform as expected? Does it have a mental advantage? Which means when that category entry point is in play, you have a better chance than you should for a brand of your size or are you at a disadvantage because maybe someone else has a mental advantage or it's something you don't offer in part of your portfolio. Mm. So going back to my example, if you don't, so some of those days where I really need something to pick me up, if you don't have the double cat espresso option, I might not, you, I might not, I might my brain will not even think of you because it will not have you in the repertoire of options that um, are good when I want something to really pick me up. Mm. Um, on because category entry points is really it's it's really interesting um, and it's it's great because it's quite expansive. When you start to go off and think about lots of things, you probably wouldn't have thought about like you know I, mm-hmm. I don't know. I think when I was talking to Professor Sharp before, he I don't know what we were talking about, and he was saying. Um, I think he was saying to Coca-Cola that they're missing a massive category. Now, this is a point-to-purchase opportunity, but it's a category entry point in in coffee shops. You know, people are going in for a pick-me-up and there's caffeine in Coke and they want caffeine, but, you know, they don't consider a Coke as an option in that situation. So, it's a look, it's a distribution thing and it's a physical availability, but it's also a mental availability thing when people think, oh, I want a coffee. You know, there could be a, a missed opportunity there. So, it's quite complicated. The, the, question, the question I have is that... Um, because we've done a bit of this this type of expansive or, or thinking before and trying to see how brands show up in, in different areas. What I found, well, a couple of things, sometimes people run too quickly into point of purchase as a category entry point. They miss the point. They're kind of thinking, but where am I sold? And they kind of conflate different things. But 
what where I found things went a bit wrong before was we just ended up having loads of kind of small tactical things because they're all kind of nuanced to an individual thing with loads of different small things. And that became quite problematic because um, some of the solutions were media and some of them were messaging and we just had a bunch of stuff that felt quite small. So how do you, like when, you, when you're doing this kind of work, what, 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 is an, what could an output be? How important is media and how important is messaging? And um, what, what, what are you looking for? Are you looking for a, a, a big kind of gap or something you need to work on? And then do, do you address that with tactical executions or is it something that feeds back into your brand message? So that's a long question, but do you know what I mean? Because it, it, it can be lots of small bitty stuff. If, if, you, if you go head on and tackle every kind Category entry point, um, you might be left with loads of little small tactical things left uh, to do, right? Um, and some is media, some is messaging. So, how do you kind of pull all that together? Where does it go? Okay, so so first, what you were talking about actually wasn't a category entry point. It is about where you're distributed. It's about presence. Mm. Category entry point is something to pick me up. And what Byron was pointing out, probably I. I remember but um the fact that when someone's in that mindset of something to pick me up and they're at a grocery store um it's not there um mm. coffee's not coca at a cafe it's very hard to see coca-cola where someone see very easy to see coffee mm. and so you might go well i'll go for it. and you're suddenly your um set you're choosing is shall I have a latte or a cappuccino or a iced coffee rather than the Coke, which is often in a fridge, if mm -hmm. it's there at all, down the corner or out the, you have to ask for it and they have to reach down and get it. It's just not visible and so it doesn't stand out and so you're missing an opportunity there. Um, I find people often think things are category entry points that aren't really um, and often micro mm. assess them. So, for example, if you take something like whiskey, um, you can have a category entry point that is your grandpa's 80th birthday. But the problem with it is from a marketing perspective is, well, most of us, if we're lucky, we might only have one or two grandpas at mm. most. People might have a few more, but that's the exception. And, you know, 80, but not many, you know, some a lot make it to 80, but there's some that don't. Mm -hmm. And that only happens once a year. So we're limiting the number of times it can happen, the number of the people it can happen for. Yeah. So you can then extend that to be, well, any grandpa's birthdays. It doesn't have to be 80th. It can be 79th. It can be 82nd, this sort of stuff. Well, that expands it a bit, but it's still limited in people. And then you might think, well, actually, um, when you do the research properly, you might discover that, oh, it's not just grandpa. It's actually any male in the family because typically whiskey drinkers do tend to skew male. Mm -hmm. um, it's changing. I'm, I like whiskey myself, but I know I'm in the minority. Um, but that, that expands it to, you know, any male that you might know sort of thing. So, so we're changing the category entry point from being very micro to suddenly now being of substance right. um, in there. And if you do the research, so so we do the research to so we separate out identification from prioritization of category entry points. And it's really important to do because they have very different samples and you need to get variety across people and within a person. So just as I have different different ways of coming into drinking coffee, I have different ways of coming into drinking whiskey. You know, one day I might like an old-fashioned. Another day I might just like it on the rocks. I might just need to unwind after work. I might want something after dinner. These are all different ways I can come in that I, as an individual, can experience, but also other people will do as well. 
Mm. So, so you need to identify them first and have them then uh, roll up into things that are um, not ubiquitous but at least sensible enough that you've you've aggregated together common elements right. that might be like birthdays, father days, father's days, all those sorts of celebratory events can really come under one. There's no reason why they need to be separated mm. out. But for people, there might be a reason. For example, if you're talking about drinks in general, the drinks you give your kids are very different from potentially the drinks you might give your teenagers or your partner. Mm. So, you know, so so that sort of thing can, so that's where you wouldn't aggregate just for anyone in the family. You might have a separate category point for kids, separate category point for teenagers, separate ad- 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 category point for adults mm-hmm. because it shapes the brands differently of what are going to be suitable at that time. Mm-hmm. And then once you've got those, then it's about quantifying them and understanding the relationship. And that's where I use the three C's model that we developed in order to be able to get a priority, and that is how common they are, how credible they are for you as a brand, and how competitive they are. And once you do that, you can actually sift through and work out what are the ones that are going to be useful. Um, And the two uses of them are in your messaging Mm -hmm. to build relevant mental structures and build mental availability, but also then for your portfolio management to make sure that you're delivering on because you don't want to build mental availability and then people go, oh, yeah, I'm going for brand net. Oh, they don't have anything, you know, and that Mm. can be the price point, the pack, all of the physical availability aspects of it, particularly from a portfolio perspective. Mm. Um, So, you know, so that's that's how those things work together. Now, in terms of things like media, media is just the vehicle for the creative execution. Mm -hmm. So I'm not really sure that, I mean, the media you just pick in order to reach the people and that some media have advantage in terms of, you know, whether you can show or say something and and the properties and that sort of stuff. But media is not really related to category Mm, entry. It's how they get into, how you get, your brand linked into people's brains. Mm, yeah, yeah. Um, and I love the the five W's framework. So I'm going to put you on the spot. Uh, it's, it's seven. Seven, seven. sorry, seven, seven W's um, framework. I'm going to put you on the spot and say, if it was, let's say, a, a big brand that we all know, if you're thinking about this, because I like these examples, um, uh, Heinz Ketchup. Let's just take mm-hmm. Heinz Ketchup. Big brand. Talk me through how you might use your framework or, or what wh- where that might, just an example, because I always think it'd give an example of people because I found it useful when you did when I when I read this. So talk to me about Heinz, Heinz Ketchup and the seven W's. Okay. Um, so when might you have ketchup? So you might have it for dinner, you might have it for lunch, you might have it for a snack. You might have it in the evening. Um, or you might have it in, um, very rarely would have it in the morning. So that's one of the things where you go, you're probably not going to get many people saying ketchup, but then sometimes people put it on scrambled eggs and things mm-hmm. like that. Um, uh, where might you have ketchup? Well, you'd probably have it in your home, but you might have it at, um, at work. I remember when I um, hiked up um, Everest Base Camp, there was a British guy who took ketchup with him and we were laughing at him at the beginning, but um, if you've ever done, if those people who've done that hike, you know, as you get higher, 
ingredients get less, the food gets blander. We were so jealous of his ketchup uh, by the time we uh, got to the because he had flavour on his foods where I was eating the 15th um, bowl of egg fried rice that just tasted like mush. So, you know, so you know, it's a thing. And this is where when you actually ask consumers, you'll get a mixture of general things, but you'll then get some individual things as well. So... Um, how people have those memories of when they're using them. Um, if you think about uh, with for whom, um, so it'd be for yourself, but kids often um, are big in play there because most kids like ketchup to smother everything in. Um, while, so that's activities. So it might be that when you're, um, oh, I don't know, having a party, you might have ketchup. Uh, there as well or maybe when you're watching tv having a snack you might have ketchup with that so a snack while watching to you know complement a snack while watching tv uh, with what is a big one because that can be anything from your scrambled eggs your, I mean I love I think sausage rolls are actually a ketchup vehicle yeah. I don't think they're food in themselves they're just the purpose <laughs> of sausage rolls yeah. is to able to eat them with ketchup yeah. um, so you know so that's um thing uh, chips fries obvious one mm-hmm. you know so you think about all of the things that accompany it but when you're doing that so that's an example where when you're looking at that with food it's very easy to come up with a really long list mm-hmm. and then what you have to do is go through and what are the common themes so the common themes might be hot and salty foods which might encompass chips sausage rolls sort of stuff other things might be bland foods, which might encompass mm. your scrambled eggs, your you know your um, boring rice, whatever. So so you think so you don't just have them all. So you might use those individual ones when you're executing it creatively, but from a category entry point of what's the memory you're building? It's like ketchup goes really well with hot salty food. Mm. Ketchup will liven up a bland dish. Mm. You know, those are the sorts of things. So you actually have to go through and think about what's common about them, not treat them all individually. Mm. Um, and then we've got how feeling. Um, so how you might feel before ketchup. Probably don't have any great emotion there, but you might enjoy the unctuousness of the flavour and the sort of stuff um, during your eating. So it might be the emotions for ketchup are actually about the experience of eating it, not necessarily before or after. Whereas if you're talking about, say, something like drinking water, usually the emotions come in afterwards and before. You're feeling really dehydrated. You're feeling really, ugh, mm. and then you have the water, and the water itself is like, oh, it's drinking water. But afterwards you feel more relaxed. You feel more calm. You feel more in tune. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, I think I've covered most of them. Yeah. Have I missed them? No, yeah. I, I think but so. sort of the thought process you go through. Right, yeah, and I get that. And then, and then you get into the space of okay like um livening up things that are bland which then kind of can expand into just making things fun which expands into kids you know makes meal times a bit more fun and so that's the territory um you you've uh, you've said before uh, i've heard you mention cases where when you think about category entry points particularly a, brand, a client might be um winning the battle but losing the war um and mm-hmm. So in relation to category entry points i think what you meant by that was they're doing really well maybe fantastically well too well even in certain ones but completely not showing up in other ones so can you give me an example of of without naming a client of where what that might be and um yeah just so yeah mm. so people kind of get get what Which we mean is, by that 
Yeah, I mean, quantitatively, um, it's 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 what I would describe when um, a brand has a very big mental advantage on a low incidence category entry point that's not looking like it's moving. And I'll get. I mean, the the, the most common examples I hear are health and sustainability. So health in food and sustainability in pretty much everything. So you do a I do a study with consumers, and the, the my key client will go didn't they mention sustainability at all? Mm. And we're like, look at the transcript, you can see yourself. Uh, Because it's a big topic internally, but it's not on consumers' minds. Mm. Um, Health is a good example. I mean, health in food tends to be either very high or very low, depending on the food category. So some food categories where it is very high incidence, but there's a lot where there's low. And it's, it's sort of like you go, you're not the category. If someone has health on their mind, you're not the category that they're going for. Mm. Now, that doesn't mean you don't create healthy foods because that's important, you know, for a whole heap of reasons, but that's just not what you lead within your messaging. That's not why people are coming. Right. Um, and so that's the thing. And so it's what I'm talking about. So you, you win the battle. Yep, you're really known as health. The problem is the people who are coming into this particular food category with health on their mind are so few and so rare that you're not going to make money out of that. Right. Yeah. Um, so don't doesn't mean that's bad, and you can keep that. And chances are, if you've got a big mental advantage, you don't need to do anything. People already know that. But you can dial in some of the more common category entry points where there's opportunities, and get yourself thought of more often. So you don't you don't ignore you don't you don't remove the health aspect of it. You just don't have to tell people anymore. Right. Yeah. 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 That makes total sense. Yeah. Um, you and you've also talked about the fact that a, a lot of brand tracking is too brand centric. Okay. So, what do you mean by that? Why? Why is that? Why is that an issue for brand tracking when the, when studies are being designed mm-hmm. to be too brand centric? Why is that an issue? And uh, like, what can happen? Can you elaborate on that for me? Well, simple. Brands don't exist except for in people's minds. Hmm. That's how brands are created. So if it's all about the brand and not about the people, it's kind of missing the big point of it. And that's why category entry points came about. When I reviewed brand trackers, I went, yeah, you've got lots of things that are about the brand. Is it trustworthy? Is it innovative? Is it modern, up-to-date? If it's thing, um, but where is the consumer in this and what's yeah. going on in there? And so I just think you're just missing the point. If all you're focusing about the brand, it's like kind of like being at that party when you sit stand next to some, you start talking to somebody and they just talk about themselves the whole time, yeah. and you realise that you're redundant to the conversation. You could walk away and they'd still have the exact same conversation. <laughs> yeah. That's when you go. That's that's what a lot of brand trackings are like. It's what often a lot of advertising is like. It's about the brand, not about the people that are have the brand in their mind that you want to buy your brand. And that and that can give you that can give you because you if if you design a brand tracking study that way and you and you go in and you start you shortcut people in we're, we're going to talk about this you prime them and they're they're kind of okay so I'm thinking about the 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 brand not the category necessarily your brand tracking might be fantastic you might be giving yourself a really a false version of reality and you might go this is amazing we're doing really because I see sometimes and maybe not so much not lately but I have seen a lot of cases where brand tracking said it's doing really well the brand's doing really well really healthy we're flying and all the things that we're measuring people love it but yet then 
sales aren't doing very well. And you go, well, so this doesn't make sense. And it's always kind of whatever, it's missed. We'll look at that. Oh, we'll need to dive deeper on that and look at it. And then it never happens. And it just, sales either pick back up or they don't. But it's a real head scratcher. And, it, and it's probably because they've gone in and, and designed the brand tracking. It's way too brand centric, as you said. And they're, they're missing the point that we prime people that way, that they're, you know, we're, we're not drawing attention to it. Yeah, it could be. I mean, the, the thing to remember is that um, what's going on in people's heads is only one part of the picture. You yeah. also so I, you also have the physical availability out there. So you can have sales go if you lose distribution, for example. Mm-hmm. And so everything can be right in people's heads, but then they go into a store and it's just not there anymore. And so they'll buy something else because they're repertoire buyers. So so you can have that mismatch between um, your, your what's going on in people's heads and and sales. But that's a, a specific. You know, you would know that. Yeah, you'd know that. Yeah. But often, yes, often. So sometimes the, the three problems people have is they don't measure the right things. They measure the right things in the wrong way. So they don't measure the right things. They're focused on you know ten attitude measures and um, nothing on properly on um, mental availability, buying, etc. They're measuring the right thing in the wrong way. So they're, for example, using top of mind to measure mental availability. And I've had people come to me and go, hey, you know, our um, sales have gone down, but our mental availability is stable. And I go, okay, how are you measuring mental availability? And they go top of mind awareness. And I go, well, there's your problem. Um, Don't need to talk anything. Um, Or you might be measuring the right thing in the right way, but interpreting the results wrongly. So that's when you're not controlling for brand size and understanding what you should get. You're just looking at raw numbers and so getting a maybe a misleading view. Sometimes more numbers are fine, but sometimes they can mislead and knowing the difference between those can help identify those warning signals or mm. those opportunities. Um, so I want to talk about brand tracking, hugely important, um, but but relatively speaking, it can be it can be expensive for a small market like Ireland. So like in the UK, you've got huge markets, um, the, the the customer base is huge, the sales are huge. Ireland, we're, you know, roughly speaking about a tenth of the size. So the, the cost of doing brand tracking doesn't come down by 10. Like the cost of media comes down by 10, it's 10x roughly, um, and the sales are divided by 10. But the cost of doing things, even like econometrics and stuff like that, it does, they don't scale down to one tenth of the price. So they can be the entry points of cost wise can be quite expensive. So if there's a if there's a a small brand, a small client who says, well, I, I can't really afford to do, they think they can't afford to do brand tracking. How what advice would you give them? So in terms of the the, the things that can help you the cost keep the cost down are less frequent dips in the market or less questions on a survey. So. For for clients who think I can't do any kind of brand tracking studies, what would you say to them? Or what are the what are the and what are the minimum amount of kind of times you can dip? Or how 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 frequent is is not frequent enough? It's like is twice a year okay? Or does it vary hugely by category? How could you convince people who say we can't afford to do it? Because you'd say you can't afford not to do it. I would say because you have to have some indications to what's working in brand tracking. But if they think that I just don't have the big budgets, what what can they? How can they make it more affordable? Okay, well, the first thing is, yes, get efficiency in what you're collecting. So to help people, I do have on my website uh, a Word version of the questionnaire that you can, template questionnaire, that you can download as a starting point. And you'll see it's actually very simple. It's not overly complicated. You can fill out the questions and you'll see. And that actually can cover you. Now, some people I appreciate we're going to want to add things to it, but, you know, that gives you the basics. It's probably about a 15-minute uh, questionnaire, maybe 20 on a on a bad day type of thing. 
Secondly, have frequency. And this is where I would start with once a year and only increase it if I had issues with, say, seasonality or there were dramatic differences or I was in a more um, heavily bought and heavily advertised category. Um, and then I would only go quarterly, as I said, if I was a really, like, very heavy advertiser like your supermarket retailers and things like that that have mm. a lot. Um, yeah, because the, 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 if you bear the metrics right and you have the robustness that you're not just measuring wobble due to sampling error, you won't find big changes and sort of thing. And, and the risk you have, particularly if you're doing the small sample tracking every week and then rolling it up, is you are making it so hard to actually see when things change mm. because you're doing it. So you want to do it at a point in time and you want to go, all right, so in between my points in time, I'm doing everything I can to permanently change, it, well, as permanent as you can, but in the long term change people's memories about the brand. And I know I'm doing this versus competitors, so I'm going to do a stake in the ground here, see where I'm at, and then in a year's time I'm going to see what's the cumulative effect there. Then you'll be able to see. So not so much about identifying each individual activity was that working. There are different mechanisms for that. Your brand health tracking should be how have the memories in people's minds changed for the brand in the long run, and if they have, has it been to our advantage or to our disadvantage? And then you can also look at the relationship with sales and see, well, if there's a mismatch, okay, why hasn't that translated into sales even though we've got the mental? So we might have, say, the mental availability. We're not getting the sales. Okay, what's wrong with our physical availability? Has something gone wrong there? Has a competitor launched a lookalike product and so is stealing you know, our sales? Something mm -hmm. like that might have as well so it becomes a diagnostic tool mm -hmm. as well as a formative tool so it not only measures past performance it gives you a sense of where you want to go in the future as well and that's what a good brand tracking should be should have a foot in the past but it should have its eyes on the future right okay yeah I couldn't disagree with any of that now uh, I'm not going to keep you much longer I think just well maybe this is the last question um I, I'm going to grant you the superpower of being able to change one one thing and one thing only. So if you could change, what's the, 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 the biggest mistake that you think people in marketing get wrong? And if you could change everybody's behaviors or change people the thing to do wrong, what what and that was your great contribution to the world of marketing to make it like what's the what's the biggest sin that we can that you see committed as by marketing people that you would love to change? Thinking that we know how marketing works, that we've solved that. There is still so much we have to learn. So I think, um, you know, I encourage humility. I am aware of the fact I have so much to learn. Um, and I think more we have an open mind and we're able to confront evidence, go, oh, I thought that, now I don't. Now I have um. to change my mind about that. I think this the better will be as a discipline um, because we're a young discipline. We've been going for less than 100 years. Yeah. You know, think about all the stuff we don't know about physics, biology, maths, all this stuff. Yeah, they're still sorting themselves out and they've been going for millennia. Mm. You know, if we think we've got it all sorted now. So anyone who comes in with, there are some things we can be confident about because mm -hmm. we see repeated empirical evidence. 
but we need to constantly test those under new conditions and we need to build on that and understand that having knowledge that doesn't take that into account is not helpful. Mm. It just is a distraction that potentially is why people go down the path. So I look at everything, every new idea and go, how does this fit in with what I know for the laws of growth? And that's mm. how I my work in brand tracking and what has been so informative about it is that I looked at what people were doing in brand tracking and said, how does this reconcile with what I know about how brands grow? And then realised, oh, in the main it doesn't at all and that's what we need to fix. Mm. I was I was not expecting that as an answer, but I love that answer. That's a really that's a really great answer. So uh, yeah, I'm very happy with that. Um, I know the book's widely available and I, I recommend... Um, everybody who's listened to read it because it's just it's just really interesting and I'm not, I'm not in that I'm on the media and strategy side of things it was just super interesting and and I was speaking to somebody the other day I can't remember new into the industry relatively new in and, and they hadn't even read How Brands Grow and I was like oh you have to read these things like, and we, we, it's a wonderful time to be in marketing I say this all the time there's so much great work now there's so much you're right we don't know everything but but we know an awful lot more than we used to and we, and we know we're very um, there's great work being done in, in, in come from your neck of the woods in terms of attention economy and how we we understand how people think better uh, or how the brain works and what we need partial attention so it's a good time to be in marketing um but i, I love i love that about just kind of have some humility and don't think you know all the answers so if anyone is interested in finding out a little bit more about 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 you about your work um and your books or anything like that where can they where can they, you mentioned the the questionnaire that people can download where can they find out anything where can they go have a snoop around uh where can they find you well we have our um our institute website at marketingscience.info um and you can connect with me on linkedin that's okay. my main awesome. primary uh, social network okay awesome well um and what what are your plans are you got any are you busy now just so you do turn around the place or are you kind of busy for the next few months what's going on I am stable in staying home, but yes, it's a hectic time of year, but hoping to take some time off in January to relax. Right. Well, listen, thank you so much. Um, I'm always very appreciative of, of people taking the time out of their busy schedules because, um, you know, and there's a lot of, there's a lot of new people to the industry listen to, listen to this and students will. So I, I think you've done a great service to the industry and I thank you so much for your time. So thank you. And I'll let you enjoy your evening. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Cheers. Thanks. So, yes, uh, that's it. We've run out of time again. So, yeah, really appreciative, Jenny. Thanks for taking the time. And thanks to you for listening. If you like that episode, why not listen back to our ever-growing, evergreen back catalogue? You will find them by simply typing Irish Times Inside Marketing into your search engine of choice. A big thank you, as always, to Kira, our own Kira in marketing, Andrea on sound, and the wonderful people in Irish Times Media Solutions who help make all of this possible. So... That's it. And if you don't know, now you know. A lot of brand tracking can be too brand centric and misses the point of why people shop and buy the categories. So make sure you cover your category entry points. And also, maybe you don't have to do your brand tracking every month um, to help keep the cost down. So, yeah, um, until next time, thank you for listening. The Inside Marketing Podcast, brought to you by Dentsu and Irish Times Media Solutions. 